guys, Sarah here, and I've been dying for you to hear Chelsea's story pretty much since we recorded this last fall. I feel especially connected to her since she was one of the first people to find me on Instagram after my story was shared back in 2019. I followed her back and yeah, we're Facebook friends too. And over the years, I've honestly forgotten that that's how we originally connected. I never knew the depth of her experience though. She's always been kind of a quiet supporter and follower. So I was blown away by our conversation. And afterward, I remember stepping out of my home office and telling my husband, she is why I'm doing this. This is giving me hope for having a podcast of my own. Now, for my own sake, I have to mention that this was recorded before I had sorted out my audio situation. So I will say not every moment of this conversation is up to my ideal standard, but we are getting there. So your grace and patience with my learning process is greatly appreciated. Last but not least, I do want to make you aware that there are mentions of animal abuse and domestic violence in today's conversation so that you can listen with caution. This is Chelsea. <laughs> um, we, she, we've been following each other on social media for a while. Actually, you, I think, were one of the first. So when Tiffany's podcast, Something Was Wrong, started really taking off, I think you were one of the first people, first like few hundred or whatever that found me. Yeah, probably. I, I think that I listened to it pretty early on after it came out. Was it 2020 or 2021? It was 2019, January of 2019. Wow. Okay. So I must have listened to it in 2020. But um, at the time, I was walking to and from work in Chicago, and it was like a mile each way. So when I like when I first started the podcast, I would listen to it walking to and from work, and I just blew through it in like three days. Oh, I can I can imagine that's, that's <laughs> a lot. That's really intense for three days. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, when, when my situation happened, I felt pretty alone, um, you know, especially coming from the South. No one really talks about traumatic situations. No one gets a divorce. No one has abuse in their relationships, at least that they speak about in public. So I really resonated with your story and it made me feel not so alone you know, knowing that someone else had experienced something similar. And I hate that you did, but it, um, I don't know. It made me feel more empowered, I suppose. Good. Well, that's the point. <laughs> that's why you're here now is to pass it on. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> I asked, you mentioned that, you know, where you grew up and divorce was not a thing. Were you raised in a conservative environment yes. or Christian or yes. not? Very much so. Yes. Um, I, I was raised outside of Birmingham in the middle of nowhere, 30 minutes away from the nearest grocery store on a river. And I was raised in a very conservative Christian household. My parents are still married. Uh, they have a very traditional marriage. They're ridiculously happy, but it's very much, you know, my mom cooks and brings my dad his dinner every night. And, you know, my dad does the yard work. And so, it's just very traditional Southern values. Got it. Well, I'll let you go from here then. Okay. So I, I believe, I, I guess my story would start when I got married to James. And we met my freshman year at Auburn. He was actually dating my neighbor in the dorm. And they had been dating for two years. And she became my best friend and he became my friend by association. At the time, I had I dated quite a bit and I had one serious relationship that lasted three years from high school to sophomore year of college. So I was actually dating that boyfriend when I met James. And I, I did have some experience with dating, but not so much that I could pick up on the red flags because I think that my relationship of three years was very healthy. So this was my first encounter with with an unhealthy relationship. So I, I think that I would consider myself fairly inexperienced up until this point. And I had decided that, you know, I wanted to wait to have sex until I was married and, you know, I didn't really party. And so I was, 
I was kind of a goody two shoes while I while I was at Auburn. So I think that kind of lays the groundwork as to where I was. I met my dorm neighbor. We we became best friends. She was dating James at the time. And uh, like I said, we became best friends. At the time, James was a helicopter pilot in the military and he was stationed at a at a base that was about an hour south of Auburn. So he, while he was not a student in Auburn, he would come up almost every weekend and visit her. And so because of that, we we became great friends. And then after he was stationed outside of Nashville, I would drive up and spend weeks in the summers with with them. And uh, she eventually moved in with him outside of Nashville. So I I never had a crush on James. Uh, I, I, ne- I would never consider myself, you know, kind of wishing that I had him. However, I knew that I wanted someone just like him. And I was very vocal about that and, and told him that and asked him to set me up with his friends because he, he reminded me so much of my dad. He was a pilot. My dad is also a pilot. He could fix anything or build anything. He had a motorcycle. He was very driven in his career. He was incredibly charming, very type A. He shared the same beliefs and values that I did. He came from a huge close-knit family in Chicago. I knew that I wanted something exactly like that because it felt familiar. So things ended with my friend and James, my junior year of college, I believe, early on junior year, late sophomore year. And they had been broken up for a few months and, you know, were totally ended. And he approached me and said, you know, I've had feelings for you for quite a while. I told him that I would never disrespect my friendship with my friend and that she came first. And that if that was something that he wanted to pursue, that he would have to let her know. But until then, I was out. He approached her actually on New Year's Eve of 2013, I believe, and told her. And she lost her mind. And she was so upset. She called me and called me every name in the book. I tried to explain to her that I told him no, that her friendship meant more to me than any man. And she would not hear me out. She would not hear anything I had to say. She wouldn't listen to me. For a couple of weeks, I tried and I tried and I tried, but she made it very clear that our friendship was over and that there was nothing that I could say or do to fix it. So at that point, that pretty much gave me the green light to do whatever I wanted. So James and I started dating. Did you happen to find out why they broke up or what ended their relationship in the first place? He cheated on him. And is that something he told you or do you know it for sure? I know it for sure from both parties. Mm-hmm. So we started dating. Uh, it was around January, February of 2013, uh, my junior year. Like I said, at the time, he was he was stationed outside of Nashville. And things moved very quickly, especially because we had known each other for three years prior. And I think that's why I, how I justified it going so quickly. But he told me that he loved me a weekend. We started thinking about getting married. My parents never explicitly said this, and I never want to put any sort of blame on them. But it, it was pretty well known that I would either get married or I would stay in Birmingham. But I, under no circumstances, would be moving in with James just because of you know the family that I come from and the beliefs that we have. And so I decided I wanted to get married. So he proposed on my 21st birthday in June and we got engaged after four months of dating. We, after I went back to Auburn, he and I would drive back and forth to Nashville every single weekend. We would switch off. We got married a week after my college graduation. After that, I moved to uh, outside of Nashville and I have to say, I I have never been so happy in my entire life. We had an absolutely incredible marriage. I, I honestly 
just wanted to pinch myself because I, I just didn't understand how I had gotten so lucky with him. So after about a year of us living off base, he decided that he wanted to get out of the army. And I think it's important to clarify here that he was he never deployed. He never experienced any sort of combat. So PTSD is not a factor here. So okay. he was originally from Chicago, just like my my friend. And that's where they met. And he wanted to be closer to his family. I had always dreamed of moving to a big city. And my parents always encouraged that. Please go experience something else other than rural Alabama and then and then come back after you've seen the world and done all of these things. And so I had planned up until I met James that I wanted to move to New York City. My older cousin lived there and I looked up to her so much and I wanted to do exactly what she did. And that was my plan. And so when he proposed moving to Chicago. It was the suburbs of Chicago. I was absolutely thrilled because I wanted to live close to a big city and experience something different than than Alabama. We moved. We bought a house a mile away from his childhood home and his parents. We were incredibly happy. It wasn't until, I guess, a year and a half, two years into our marriage, James came to me and said that he was experiencing depression. I think he was having kind of a hard time adjusting to life outside of the military. He had a fantastic job. He was flying a helicopter for this company that was based in downtown Chicago, had a fantastic job, fantastic co-workers, but he was still experiencing depression. And, and I actually have clinical depression. I was diagnosed sophomore year of college. So I, I totally understood I was on Wellbutrin and, and still am. And so I now graduated in psychology. So I said, okay, let's take action. Let's get you in therapy or get you on medication. This is a quick fix. Everything will be great. He gets on Wellbutrin. And two weeks later, he is on a work trip in Kentucky. And I received a call at 3 a.m. from the police. They said that he had destroyed his hotel room, had destroyed the TV, shredded the curtains, destroyed the bathroom, unplugged the plumbing in the bathroom, and yes, and was running through the halls naked. And he was so aggressive that he was held at gunpoint by six police officers. I did not know how to react. And his coworker who was in Chicago called me and right after because the, the police had called him as well. And we hopped on the next flight to Kentucky. I was incredibly close to his parents, especially not knowing anyone in Chicago. Like I said, he came from a big Polish family and they welcomed me with open arms immediately. You know, I come from a fairly small family, so it was so nice to have an overwhelmingly large family. And I truly felt like a daughter. He had a sister that was a year older than me, and she was my very best friend. We saw each other almost every single day. So I felt extraordinarily comfortable with, with his entire family. So I called his parents and they were uh, on vacation in Michigan. So they said, we can't get a flight, but we'll just start driving. They actually got into Kentucky around the same time that I landed. So we went to the uh, the hospital in Kentucky. It was not a very good healthcare facility, to say the least. They had sort of put him in a hallway and just sort of left him. I spoke with the nurses and the doctor and said, "Can you can you tell me about what happened? And they said, we don't know but he seems fine. So you can take him home. They assumed they, they drug tested him and there was, there were no drugs in his system, but there is, I guess, a, a, a fake form of marijuana called spice. And they assumed that he had smoked spice, which I did not really know anything about, but they found something that resembled it in his hotel room. To this day, honestly, I, I don't know what, what caused it, but we brought him home. And he was diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder. I, I was still very positive that, that we could fix this, that it was just tweaking his medication that we needed to do. 
He started meeting with a psychiatrist, was not in therapy, but was regularly meeting with his general practitioner and his psychiatrist. So I was I was happy. He was fired from his job, obviously. So I was the only breadwinner at that point. I think he spiraled even further into a depression after that because I would leave for work in the morning and come back and he would be in the same spot on the couch and did absolutely nothing all day. And, you know, I, I took over. I'm sorry, go ahead. So a couple of questions, I guess, just for context, or I'm trying to understand how old was he at this point? We got married on his 26th birthday. So he, and I was 21. So he was five years older than me. And he was, I guess, 20, 28 at the time. Had you ever noticed shifts in his mood or when he got angry, maybe it was never directed at you, but did you ever witness inconsistencies? No, I never experienced any sort of of anger issues from him whatsoever. I, I will say that he would have these phases where he would be super interested in something, whether it was golf or boats or building something, and he would become obsessed with it for like two weeks. And then he would stay up late at night working on whatever project it was. He wouldn't sleep much. And then he would just kind of grow out of it after two weeks. And looking back, I, I do think that is consistent with, with symptoms of bipolar. And this is just speculation, but he did not disclose everything that happened. And after graduating in psych and going through all of my old textbooks, I truly believe that he is schizophrenic. It was like a light switch overnight. I was happy and he was my husband and we, we had a great marriage. And then in the blink of an eye, he was a totally different person. And you and there, that you know of, there wasn't a, an event or a shift in maybe his health or environment that triggered the, the change? No. I mean, besides moving there, and I mean, I guess he lost his job after, but at that point it was, it was just moving. And I thought that he would be even happier being closer to his family. You know, they were only a mile away. So we saw them just about every day, but it just seemed like no matter you know what, if we moved closer, if we did something that I believed would make him happy, it just didn't really seem to make a difference. I'd be curious to know if your ex-friend and his ex, you know, if, if she experienced anything. Yes. I'll, I'll kind of touch on that later. Yeah. So two weeks after that, they, they put him on lithium. He said that he did not like how he felt on it. He felt like he was in a cloud. So two weeks after this incident, we were at home watching TV and I look at him and he is totally still sitting on the bed, not moving, not blinking. I lean over and I say, James, James, and he's not responding. He's just staring straight ahead. He, I, I eventually am sitting in his lap, shaking his shoulders, and he is not phased or moving. And I could feel that his heart was racing. This went on for roughly 20 minutes. And then I called his parents and asked them to come over. They came over and he stayed that way for roughly an hour. He was in a catatonic state for an hour. Well, that had to be so stressful. Very. And once he finally came to, he said that he, he didn't realize that it was an hour. He thought less than a minute had gone by, had no memory of, of what happened. So I just assumed that it was an, an adjustment to the medication that something needed to be changed. And so again, they, they changed his medication. In between the, the first mental breakdown in the hotel and, and to that point, I had started to see changes in his behavior. He approached me and said, you know, one thing that I love so much about him were our shared beliefs. And he said, I have been lying to you and I'm an atheist. I ref if we do have children together, I refuse to raise them in a Christian home. And I refuse to support you if you wanted to take our children to church. 
I, I was at a loss at that point. Over time, he he just kept mentioning things that were contradictory to everything that he had shared with me for the four years prior that I knew him. Cut to two weeks later after they adjusted his medication again. I was upstairs in our bedroom folding laundry. He came upstairs and he just stood in the doorway and stared at me. At that point, he picked up our our cat. He was a kitten at the time and looked at me and said, I'm going to snap his neck. I had no idea how to respond or what to do. And at that point, he tried to hold him out of the window of our second story home. And at that point, I, I started screaming. He set down the cat. And then he came over to me and I tried to, I had my cell phone next to me. So I tried to call his parents without him noticing, but he noticed and picked up my phone and threw it across the room. The psychiatrist had prescribed him Ativan, which she said that if he were to go into another catatonic state or or have some sort of breakdown, that it was essentially a a quicker version of Xanax that he would, you know, calm down, his heart rate would slow, he would be back to baseline. So I pulled out the Ativan in our nightstand and tried to to hand him the medication. And he dumped the bottle on the floor. He uh the pill that I had tried to put in his mouth, he spit in my face. There was a glass of water next to the bed and he just doused me in the in the in the water. And then at that point, he he put his hand around my throat. Granted, it, it was not hard, but it was around my throat. He said, I know that I love you, but I know that I have to kill you. At that point, I, w- I was inconsolable. It seemed like the more upset that I got, the, the madder he became and the more unhinged he became. He, w- he was speaking in gibberish. I'm not complete sentences, words that weren't real. I had no idea what what he was was saying, but the more upset I got, the madder he got. And I I tried to get up and he threw me back down. And at that point, the grip on my throat was tighter. Cut to the day prior, I had just discovered podcasts maybe a month prior and had started listening to my favorite murder. And it was and still is my my favorite true crime podcast. The episode that I had listened to prior was about a girl named Jennifer Holiday out of Texas. And this man shot her in the arm with a shotgun and abducted her, killed her cousin on the spot. And she realized that the more hysterical she became, the madder he got. And that he was clearly having a mental breakdown and and was totally unhinged. And so she totally composed herself and said, thank you so much for saving me. I'm so happy that you came to get me. Did you see the guy that shot me? The the man that shot me was going to leave me there on the highway, but thank God you came and saved me. And he said, you're welcome. I'm so, I'm so happy that I could help. And she said, you know, I am bleeding out. If, if you could just get me some bandages. And he said, of course, and, and wrapped her up in bandages. And then she said, um, you know, I am concerned that I would bleed out. And I think I need to go to the hospital. Would you mind calling 911? And he said, absolutely. He called 911, not only called the police, but had an ambulance come and met the police out at the street. And then that is when she turned and said, this is the man that shot me and abducted me. So that story immediately came to mind. I knew, like I said, that the more upset I became, the angrier he he got. So I became totally composed. And I said, I understand how you feel. I want to listen to what you have to say. I'm totally soaking wet in water. And I desperately have to use the bathroom. Would you mind if, if I ran to the bathroom and then I'll come back and we'll talk about it? And I'm so interested in in hearing what you have to say. You had just heard this other podcast. You'd heard the My Favorite Murder episode. Like, did you say the day before? The day prior. (laughs) So he said, okay, that's fine. Just uh, run to the bathroom and then come back. 
at that point I got up, I saw that the phone, my phone that he had thrown across the room was right outside of the bathroom. And so I picked up the phone and sprinted and shut the door and locked myself in the bathroom and called 911. He, I, I had it on speakerphone and he heard that I was placing a call and what I was saying. And I said, you know, my, my husband has threatened my life. I've locked myself in the bathroom. Please, I need you to come immediately. And at that point, when he heard that, he tried to break the door down. He was not able to. And the police said, you know, we'll be there in just a few minutes. The, the ambulance is already on its way. He was breaking the door down and then it was just total silence. I had no idea what was going on on the other side of that door. He had weapons, especially being in the military. I didn't know if he if he had killed himself, if he had killed my pets, what the situation was, or if he was just sitting there waiting for me to come out. The police, I stayed on the phone with them and they said, you can come, you can come outside. We're here. We're standing outside of your front door. So I opened the door and he was nowhere to be found in, in the house. So hold up. They knew that you were locked into a bathroom, but they asked you to come out of that bathroom, not knowing if your husband was between you and the cops. At that point, they said, we think, I think the your husband is, is outside. At that point, they were standing in my living room and they said, there's no one here in the house. So gotcha. I came outside of the bathroom. I went downstairs and they said, I'm not sure what happened and, and what's going on with your husband, but he met the ambulance out at the street and got right in. He's on his way to the hospital. At that point, I thought to some extent, you have to be coherent enough to understand what you were doing. He needed help. Yes. And now, were they able to hear when you were in the bathroom and they were on speakerphone? Do you think they were able to hear your husband trying to break the door? I don't know. I never asked. And I don't know if it was that he knew that he needed help. I think it was the path of least resistance. He knew that if he didn't go willingly, it would probably be in the back of a police car. And were so you soaking wet now when you came outside? <laughs> yes. So I call his parents and they call his sister. We all lived within a mile of each other. They met me at the hospital. Both his mom and his sister were nurses. I explained to them what happened. They wouldn't let me see him for a while. They said that they sedated him, that the stickers, when you go into the hospital and they put the hospital band around your wrist and then they print out your name and date of birth and you know stick it to the hospital band. Apparently he had taken a sheet of them and had taken off all of the stickers and had put them all over his body and face and was just sitting in his in his hospital bed like that. Again, I was not able to see him. And I, I called my mom after the hotel incident in Kentucky. She said, at some point you may need me. And I want you to call me and tell me when you need me and I'll be on the first flight out. So I called her in the waiting room of the hospital and I said, I need you to get on a plane. And she said, okay, I'll be there in the morning. At that point, we're taken back to the hospital bed where James is and his sister and mom came with me and, and his dad. He was pretty out of it sedated. And he said, you know, I'm so happy to see you. I'm okay. You know, I'm doing okay. I think my heart rate has come down. I'm doing much better. At that point, his sister and mom took me outside of the hospital room and said, Chelsea, because of what you said, they are going to put a mandatory hold on him for 72 hours. There is nothing they can do here that will help him. If you say you over-exaggerated and that what you told the police was not true, they will release him and we will get him into therapy, whether it's inpatient, we'll, we'll get his medication switched, we'll take care of it ourselves tonight. I agreed. And that's exactly what I did. They released him an hour later. I was too scared to spend the night in my own home. So his mom told us, come spend the night at our house. I remember that he went into his old childhood bedroom and I went across the hall to his sister's room and his mom could not understand why I didn't want to sleep in the same bed as him. She was angry that I wouldn't, that I was not there to support him, that I was deserting him in a time of need. Oh my gosh. So 
I go to work the next day. I come back home. He is home waiting on me. He said that he was angry. He stood over me and said, I'm furious that you called an ambulance. You over-exaggerated that I listened to too many murder podcasts and that I had become obsessed. Uh, It's not like you just had your life threatened the day before or your pet held out the window. Exactly. At that point, I leave and I go get my mom at the airport. I tell her everything that happened. At that point, I don't think that I fully understood the gravity of the situation because I remember saying he he put his hands around my throat, but it was very lightly. It was not in a way that he was going to hurt me. And my mom turned and looked at me and said, he put his hands around your throat and I tried to defend him. So we go to the house and... She and I sat down with him. I'd like to kind of go back because there there was a part that I didn't mention. He, I found out, had been using illegal drugs without my knowledge. I believe mixing that with the strong medication that he was on could have caused some serious side effects. Not that I know, but right, explain some of the erratic behavior. Right. My mom gets in that night. We we get to the house and she said, why don't we just sit down with him and talk to him and see if we can have a reasonable conversation with him. And I, I, I regret bringing my mom into that house. I have no idea why I put myself and my mom in danger. But again, I, I don't think I fully understood the gravity of the situation. You still probably, I mean, by now your good experiences with him outnumber and outweigh the bad experiences. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine you still think of him as the man you fell in love with. Right. Yeah. You know, I I had justified in my in my mind, this isn't him. This isn't James. This is sick James. He cannot help this any more than he could help having cancer. So, you know, we'll take action, we'll fix the situation. Things will get better and we'll go back to our happy life and our happy marriage. And this will all soon be behind us. So my, my mom and I sit down with him and, and talk to him. And she said, you know, I know that you've been been using some drugs. And I think that is messing with your medication. So I think that Chelsea and I would really feel more comfortable if you if you gave it up. He said, OK. So what it actually came down to my mom saying to him, why don't you go ahead and bring me the drugs? I'll keep it. So that way you aren't tempted. That was the point when he got angry, started yelling in my mom's face and said, you're overreacting. Your daughter is overreacting. This is having no effect on my mental state. This is actually helping me. I don't know why you're here. I don't want you in my house. This was roughly 1030 at night. And he went upstairs to the restroom and my mom looked at me and said, we need to get out of this house right now because you are in danger and I'm in danger and we need to leave. So mm. we left in the middle of the night in our pajamas with nothing, no, no other clothes, no bags, no nothing, and drove to a hotel and spent the night at the hotel. I didn't hear from him at all that night. Had He had no idea where I went, <laughs> but he never reached out. So <laughs> the next day I did two things. I called his psychiatrist myself. I told her what happened. And I said, I don't think that he is going to reach out to you and let you know what happened. And you need to be aware because you are the one that's prescribing his medication. And I'm currently in a hotel and scared. She said, okay, I'll try to set up an appointment. In the meantime, my mom went to James's parents' house and sat down with them and tried to have a reasonable conversation with them and said, you know, I hope you understand why I'm here, that I'm here to support Chelsea. I have serious concerns about James and his mental state. I think that you would also be concerned if your daughter's husband had, had threatened her in this way. So let's, tr- let's try to figure out a course of action to whether it's getting him in an inpatient facility or whatever we need to do to where he is safe and my daughter is safe. My mom said that his parents, his mom particularly got extraordinarily defensive and said, you know, James didn't have any of these problems until Chelsea came into the picture. It was at that point where my mom realized, I don't, I don't think there's any point in continuing this conversation. 
So I hear from him. He said that that he knows that I called a psychiatrist and has agreed to a meeting with her that the psychiatrist asked that I also attend. So the next day I go to work. I let my boss know what is going on. I knew that James was not in the house. I forget where he was. And I, and I went back and I packed some bags, just the necessities. His psychiatrist knows that he has threatened your life? Yes. And yet she asked for you to be in the same room with him again? She asked that we meet at a VA hospital together in a public place and have a uh, a Zoom call with her, actually, because she was based, uh, I believe, downtown. So she said, why don't you meet in a neutral location at the VA hospital? I don't believe you'll be in danger. And we can have this call together and see, uh, have a course of action and and plan something. So in the meantime, I, I went and packed a bag. I let my boss know what was happening. And I said, there is a very good chance that I'm going to need to take a leave of absence. It is all depending on how this call goes. And I will keep you updated. And he had three daughters and he was extraordinarily understanding and said, whatever you need, if you need to take FMLA, just let let me know. So I said, okay. So my mom and I went to, we drove to the appointment. We were in the waiting room and James came in and hugged me and said, you know, I've, I've missed you. I'm so happy to see you and reached for my hand to hold my hand. Uh, at that point, we get called back and they set us up in a room with the the Zoom call with the psychiatrist. She said, Chelsea, I want to hear your side of what happened. I explained to her everything that I that I just told you. After I finished, James turned and looked at me and then looked back at her and said, she's lying about everything. None of that happened. She, I could tell by the way that she looked at me that she believed me. But I looked at him and I said, there is nothing more that I can do. And I left and I got in the car with my mom and we drove straight to Alabama, 12 hours. You left the appointment. Left the appointment, got in the car with my bags packed, got on the highway and headed back down south. I'd never even told him where I was going. I I just walked out. So I get back to Alabama. I meet with a therapist there. I I had already been established with a therapist in Chicago. She knew the whole situation, but she wouldn't do any um, like telehealth appointments. So my mom set me up with someone through our church. I met with her the, the day after we got back and I explained to her the situation. And I said, I still believe there is a way to fix this. I I just cannot abandon my vows. I still am incredibly in love with him. I I just know this isn't him, that this is sick, James. I I really, truly think that we can still turn this around in time. And she said, Chelsea, that very well may be true. And she said, but I just need you to know that moving forward, you will need to have a bag packed at all times, hidden preferably for the rest of your life, you will need to have a backpack. And if you have a child with him, you will need to pack a bag for your child. And at any point, whether it's in the middle of the night, you may need to escape because your life at some point will be in danger. If you do decide to go back and you do believe that this can be turned around, you need to go into this knowing those things that at any point for the rest of your life, it could all change in an instant. That was kind of the turning point where I started admitting defeat, where it sort of set in. And my mom went into the appointment with me and I turned and looked at her and she was just quietly sobbing. A couple of days later, I'm back in Alabama, still haven't heard from him. And I hear from him. I'm driving back from a friend's house because I, I wanted to see a friend and you know let her know everything that was going on. And we caught up and I was driving back and he called me. He said, um, I haven't heard from you in a while. And I said, yeah, I, um, I just decided it was best to, to get away. He said, you know, I'm just sitting here in this empty house and, and I miss you. And I said, well, I miss you too. But I think for my safety, it's, it's probably better that we're not together right now. 
And he said, where are you? I will never forget as long as I live the the eeriness of his calm demeanor. He at no point seemed upset. He seemed very calm, friendly, matter of fact. And he said, where are you? And I said, you know, for my safety, I'd, unfortunately, I'd, I'd rather not say. And he said, I bet you're probably in Alabama. You know, I could be there in like 10, 11 hours. I think I'll kill your parents. I hung up the phone. Uh, at that point, I was almost back at my house. And I, I got back and I walked in the living room and I collapsed on the floor. It was at that point that I knew there was no turning back. I didn't advocate for myself, but when it came to my parents' life being in danger, that I was not willing to accept. I was absolutely terrified with him having military trained experience. He knew how to get through deadbolts. He knew how to break in. He had weapons. And, you know, coming from a very conservative household, my dad had had guns as well. And he, you know, tried to make me feel better and said, Chelsea, he's not going to come. He's not going to come. And if he does, we'll be prepared. We're going to be just fine. But nothing he said made me feel better. No, no, nothing can prepare you to know how to feel. And you can't just turn that fear off. This is not, you don't have any context for an experience or a threat like this. Right. The next day I uh, wake up and my parents have said, I just want to let you know that, that we called our family lawyer and he recommends recommended someone in, in Illinois, because you have to use an Illinois attorney if you're getting a divorce in Illinois. And they said, so when you're ready, we are happy to fund whatever we need to, whether it's putting down money for retainer, and we'll go from there. And I said, I want to say, after all of this is said and done, I want to say I did everything I possibly could to salvage this marriage. I said, I want to have one more phone call with him. I get him on the phone. My mom actually recorded the whole thing just in case she needed it later. And I told him, even after everything you've done and everything you've said, I am still willing to attempt to work this out under these conditions. You immediately check yourself into an inpatient facility where you are there for at least a month. I will get my own separate apartment where we will leave, live separately for at least 12 months. We will, you will meet with a therapist after getting out of the inpatient facility at least once a week. Then we will have a marriage therapist that we will meet with also once a week. And that's the only time that I will meet you in public. And after that year, we will reevaluate the situation. And on top of that, you have to give up any sort of legal substances or alcohol for the rest of our lives. Are you willing to accept that? And he said, no. I started crying and I I said, I really wish that you loved me enough to do this for me. And he said, I wish I did too. That was the end of the phone call. I filed the next day and everything was finalized roughly a month later. And it was very quick because we were huge on saving and investing. We totally lived lived off um, his paycheck and we put all of mine into savings. We had hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings. And we each had, you know, 401k, a Roth IRA. And we bought a house and had done a, a ton of renovations to it, had gutted it, and we're planning on flipping it. And I was so scared that he was going to fight me in court or something was going to provoke him that all I asked for was my equity in the house, which I I didn't want any of the savings. I wanted nothing. All I wanted was my equity in the house, which is, I think, roughly 30 grand. He agreed to it immediately. And it it was over with in a month. You had your life back. I did. Well, I did. Um. My parents wanted me to move back to Alabama. That was, and my fa- my entire family wanted me to, but I had made a ton of friends at my job and I felt like I had, you know, established somewhat of a life there by myself. 
And I told them I'm not going back to Alabama with my tail between my legs. So I'll get reestablished. I'll I'll start my own bank account. You know, I'll I'll get my equity in the house and then I'll get an apartment in Chicago and we'll, we'll see how things go. But it took three months for all of that to happen. And I slept on an air mattress at a friend's house for three months while all of this was going on. So all of this happened within, it sounds like a very, very short window, really quickly after a smooth year and a half. And then it just escalated within, it sounds like a month or two. Yes, it was, it was like a light switch. I believe the situation happened with, with my life being threatened. I, I think it was March or April and we were officially divorced on May 8th, one week before our three-year anniversary. Wow. And did he, once the divorce was final, how did, he, did he try to reach out? Did you come in contact with him again? He called me the night before we were supposed, We, at least in Illinois, we both had to go in person and stand in front of a judge and had to explain that we had irreconcilable differences and they had to, you know, approve it. The night before we went to court, he called me and said, we had some really great times, was just reflecting back on our marriage and said, you know, in the end, I think we're just, we're just two different people. And I think it just, it just didn't work as much as we wanted it to. I agreed with everything you said, because again, I didn't want to upset him. Yes, you are two very different people. Yes. So we we met in court. He hugged me. I had a friend go with me and he handed me the check for the uh the equity in the house and 3 months later he was engaged to someone else. His high school sweetheart. Do you know if she is if they're still together? What I've heard is that she is also bipolar. And last time I checked, which it hasn't, it's been a a few years, he was living in Indianapolis and she was a waitress at a restaurant and he was the bus boy. And then on the side, he was an Uber driver, which it just, it makes me incredibly sad because I still think if his parents would have advocated for him, if they would have gotten him the help he needed. I don't, I don't, I don't believe we'd still be married, but maybe he would be in a different situation. It's always interesting to see how family plays into it because a lot of the time, while you can see where someone came from and a lot of things make sense, I can't help but feel it's got to be an almost impossible position to be in because they're in such a deep state of denial often. Not every time. A lot of the time you see why someone is the way they are. But Mm -hmm. I wonder sometimes if parents or siblings or family in general just can't, that would mean that they would have to admit that everything that happened to you is valid and that their son committed those things. Right. And at the sacrifice of other people's well-being, sometimes they're not willing to admit it. Right. It's a a deep state of, uh, what do you call it, where you're like fractioning your reality so that you can exist not face something that would be almost impossible or too painful, I think, for a mom or dad to accept. Doesn't make it okay. It was so difficult the first couple of months after because I I was stubborn about going back to Chicago. I had a great job and I missed my friends. I had a great support system with them. So I insisted on going back. But overnight, I had no money, no family because they had become my family. And in the blink of an eye, they they were gone, even the extended family. And he told them that things just didn't work out. And they were upset with me for deserting him in a time of need, that things got tough in our marriage. And I left when it got difficult. And you just had to suck that up and there's nothing you can do. Yeah. How did you get through those three months? And then what changed? How did you eventually get back on your feet? I... I would say that therapy helped me significantly. I was very lucky where I was already established with a therapist. And I initially went, I started a year prior because I saw 
you know, a small decline in James's health. And I wanted to be there to have therapy so I could better support him. So she was aware of the entire situation and we just sort of picked up from where we left off. And, you know, it was nice because I didn't have to get established with anyone new. I credit a lot to my parents and they were supportive of me through the entire thing. We were ridiculously close then and we still are now. We, we talk on the phone multiple times a day. I think that while I was initially very bitter... At the beginning, I didn't have any money. So I sold my wedding ring. And with it, I bought myself therapy and a gun because I never want to put myself in a position where I'm a victim physically or emotionally ever again. Yes. And I was terrified that he was going to find me and show up somewhere in the middle of the night. I wanted to be prepared. I had recurring nightmares and would wake up totally drenched in sweat. And every once in a while, I I still have that same recurring nightmare. But after I felt more prepared, I'm an actions-based person. So I was like, okay, if I do this and I do this and I do this, I'll be okay. And with my friends and, you know, I finally got my own apartment and had my own things. And I had never lived alone up until that point. I went from my parents' house to a dorm room to an apartment that I shared with roommates, to my husband's house. So I was terrified to live on my own and and be independent. But once I, I finally did it, I realized that I had a second chance at life that a lot of people that are in similar situations don't get and that I, that I had a do over. I credit also a lot of it to my faith as well. And I feel like I kind of strayed away from God initially because like I said, I was I was sort of a goody two shoes. I waited to have sex. I didn't party. I, you know, I I wasn't crazy in college because I was I was with him. And I thought, I waited for this. I waited for this person. I was incredibly bitter. But like I said, with my family, with therapy, with my faith, I was really able to to heal fairly quickly. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, the the bitterness. I think a lot of the time, especially those of us that have a relationship with God and have faith, you can choose to either go, well, why did I wait for this? And why did you let this happen? You can also look at it like, well, how do you think you got out? How do you think you happen to listen to that one podcast the day before it possibly saved your life? You know, there are so many small coincidences. Well, it's funny that you say that because My mom is kind of a a true crime junkie as well. And that's one thing that we shared together was the love of that podcast. And like I said, I'm an actions-based person. And, you know, I said, once I get my own apartment, once I am finished with therapy, once I do this, once I do that, I will be healed. And roughly a year later, my mom and I went to my favorite murder live taping in Atlanta We had VIP tickets. And after the show, I told Karen and Georgia my story. And I told them that their podcast saved my life. Georgia cried. And, you know, I remember walking out of that auditorium. I thought, I'm officially healed. I do not have any anger. I don't have any sadness. It felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Wow. Well, now you're going to make me cry. And what year was that that you felt like you were officially healed? I I believe 2018. Okay. And you said you guys started dating and got married around 2013 and you were together three years, 2014. The divorce was in 2017. So about a year-ish later. Mm -hmm. So along the way, is there something that your therapist said or that someone said to you that was an aha moment along the way? I know there's a lot of little things. But was there a big moment or a realization or something that your therapist or someone said that stuck with you that was kind of a mental pivot or a moment of clarity? I would say the moment when I met with the therapist in in Birmingham that said, you know, I always have to have a backpack for the rest of my life. That that was really a turning point for me. And I also, when I was in Birmingham, met with the pastor that married us. Because I was absolutely terrified that I was abandoning my vows, that I was giving up on the person that I promised to love in sickness and in health. 
I told him the whole story. And when I was finished, she looked at me and said, Chelsea, God has given you a second chance at life. He was there protecting you. And I understand that we don't exactly believe in divorce, but this is a caveat to that. In situations where your life is in danger, I think that God will understand and be proud that you got out of that situation. That was really a moment of clarity for me where, where I felt a little less guilty and, and better you know, moving forward. Another thing that I'll say is that roughly two months after the divorce, I got a Facebook message. I remember I was in my brand new apartment and I had lit some candles and had started a bubble bath and climbed in with a glass of wine and listening to some music. And I just had gotten in the bath and I got a notification that I had a, uh, a Facebook message. You know, those people that you went to elementary or middle school with and then never spoke to again, but you're still friends with on Facebook. It was from one of those people. She messaged me after 20 years of not speaking and said, Chelsea, I see that your wedding pictures are no longer on your Facebook and I'm assuming that you got a divorce. So I was just curious why. Excuse me? I reacted the same way as you. And I was... I. <laughs> To cut off the music, drain the bathtub, and I was drafting a response. How dare you? I, I was going on and on and on. And right before I pressed send, she sent me another message and she said, I'm asking this because I'm in a marriage where I am concerned that I'm in danger of my life and I need your help and advice. I immediately erased everything. <laughs> so glad she said that before I pressed in. And I mean, Hurston, he, he had threatened her with a gun multiple times when she was from, she, her denomination was church of Christ where they b did not believe in divorce in, in any circumstance. And she had already consulted with the church that she was born and raised in, and their parents went to, and they told her that if she were to go forward with a divorce, that she would be banned from the church and could never attend again. And because of that, her parents also discouraged her from getting a divorce as well. Even knowing all of that, we were really able to lean on each other. And I, I feel like I was able to give her some insight. And I even told her, my parents live 15 minutes away. You say the word, my parents will be there. We will, they will pack your bags for you and you can live in my room as long as you want. You should never be shamed getting away from this person who has threatened your life multiple times and, and saving your own life. What are the, I, I mean, how do you think she knew to disclose that to you when you to, could have been divorced for any reason? To this day, I have no idea. I have no idea. I had never posted anything about abuse, about getting a divorce, about assault, Absolutely nothing. And I have no idea why she chose to reach out to me. But I guess, again, you know, a lot of people in the South don't get divorced. So maybe she thought, well, okay, well, I'll see if, if maybe we have some similarities. And she left her husband a month later, is now remarried, and actually saw that she just had a baby yesterday, actually. So wow. that experience alone I felt my experience was worth it because I didn't have that person to lean on and to encourage me, except for my parents and my therapist and all of these things. But I didn't have someone who had personally gone through it uh, as well. That was the moment where I thought, aha, this is why God allowed me to go through this situation. And this is why he saved my life. And this is why it was worth it. And that's another reason that kind of speaks as to why I wanted to, to speak with you because... I thought if my story resonates with one person and gives them the courage to leave, because people think that it's it's easier to leave a marriage and to call it quits and to get out, but it is so much easier to stay in that situation. If they have the courage to leave after hearing that I got out, that I had a second chance at life, you know, if that if that encouraged them to leave again, it would be worth it a million times over. Well, and we don't, this is like a separate episode, a separate podcast. I don't feel that I am the spokesperson to get on a soapbox when it comes to divorce in the church and how the more you get to know God's character and how he cares for people and 
his justice and vengeance against those that harm his, you would know that his heart is not for men or women to be in a situation that is costing them their safety and their well-being in any way. I mean, you can't, people can choose to stay, but I can't, oof, yeah. So for, if this, if this reaches anybody that is, is, that has been misled or is being controlled and sacrificing their own safety or their kids' safety for a misinterpretation on church authorities' part, just know you have an out. (laughs) I think God cares more about your life than he does the law that the church made up. Yes. And I have to say, I want to add that I really do feel like I got a second chance. And I remember when I told James once we we live in the suburbs of Chicago, roughly an hour outside of the city. And I told him, what if we what if we got an apartment downtown? You know, I told you I always wanted to move to New York. And I thought, why don't don't we have that experience for just a year? He looked at me and said, you would not last 10 minutes in Chicago. You just wouldn't last coming from where you're from you wouldn't be able to survive. And eight months after the divorce, I moved downtown and I did not know a soul. I left my friends in the suburbs where, I mean, I sold my car. And essentially, if you live in the suburbs of Chicago, you might as well live in a different country because I knew I would never see them again. No one wants to drive downtown from the suburbs. And so I moved downtown where I knew absolutely no one. I got a brand new job. I got an apartment for myself in a high rise right off Michigan Avenue. When I walked into the apartment for the first time, I sat there and sobbed because I was so proud of where I had come from. And I don't know if I'll be able to say this without crying. I haven't been able to yet, but I told you before that that my lease was up for renewal. And I do eventually want to come back to Birmingham at some point. And I want to be near my family. And I thought that I was emotionally prepared to potentially do it this October. And that was even the plan. I'd started looking at apartments in Birmingham. When it came down to it and I started packing boxes, I realized that I was not emotionally prepared. And I tried to kind of dissect why that was. And I realized that I have an emotional attachment to Chicago because that that's the city where where I learned that I was strong and that I was capable of living a life independently, happily away from from a man, and that I could that I could get my own friends, that I could get my own job, that I could be happy, totally alone and. Out of everything that that I went through, that is what I'm the most proud of, is that I I did it on my own. And I'm so happy and I have such a great support system. And hopefully anyone that's going through a similar situation, I just want them to know that not not only does it get better, it gets so much better, happier than, than I realized that I ever could have been. It's like your freedom multiplied. You not only did it, but you flourished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's one thing that I actually would like to add. So after I moved downtown and got my own apartment, it went from months later to years later. The family, his entire family that deserted me and his extended family that I was so close with, at some point, most of them reached out to me and apologized for not believing me and that they had seen what I had claimed to see. They finally understood the entire situation. And even his sister reached out to me and apologized. That was an absolutely incredible feeling because I felt validated, even more validated in my decision. I I knew I made the right decision, but it was even more freeing. And I feel like even more of a weight was taken off my shoulders. And we're friends on Facebook and Instagram now with, with his family members. And they are so supportive and comment on my pictures and are supportive of anyone I'm dating. It's really, really nice that it's kind of come full circle where we can kind of not get back to where we were, but at least respect each other from afar. 
That's a miracle that many people don't get. You don't realize how deep that goes and how much it means until you have that. Mm -hmm. And just to, to just a small degree. Did you find with your ex, this might not have been a factor, but were there a lot of highs where he just made you feel amazing or there was just a lot of romantic gestures and stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, I remember. Well, I mean, he told me that he loved me a weekend and I was so thrilled. And he also, when he came to visit me the following weekend, when he told me that he loved me, he bought me front row seats to go see Luke Bryan. Then he bought me this beautiful engagement ring. And I think now that it was a little bit of love bombing to an extent, but I just got so wrapped up in it. My love language is words of affirmation. So he just kept telling me how much he cared about me and when you had known him for three years as well. So it's easy to think that you're safe because you know this guy when, you know, you just didn't know a side of him. Right. Do you right. find that dating guys now sometimes might feel like a, a nice guy might feel boring compared to that? Or there is there a, and maybe not, but not boring, but maybe like a lot of people have said they're they're misinterpreting a lack of chemistry. They're thinking it's a lack of chemistry when really it's just not the same high that comes with being love bombed, if that makes sense. Yep. It's funny that you say that because I read this uh, book called Attached roughly like six months ago, and it talks about attachment styles. And I don't know if you know much about it, but there's like secure, anxious, and then avoidant. And I would consider myself fairly secure, especially now. But when I'm with an avoidant person, I become incredibly anxious. And that's when my anxiety is sort of activated. I have realized that I have mistaken butterflies for anxiety. I'm so glad that we got to talk in person and actually meet each other. And I'm just so thankful that that you were so nice and wanted to chat with me. And it's also very cathartic too, I think, to talk about it. And my mom, I told her that, that I was going to talk to you a couple of days ago. And she said, I think this is really good for you, even if it doesn't go anywhere, even if it's never posted. She said, I found that every time you tell your story and what happened to you, I see a little piece of you come back. So thank you for allowing me that opportunity. I think you are the only person that I have ever talked about it in such depth. So it was kind of nice to lay it all out. Your unique perspective on things and even just the respect with which you approached him in the beginning of the story and said, I want to come at it this way. I thought this is this is what people need to hear. This is what other women and men need to hear. So I was honored knowing that this story is going to reach the ears that need to hear it. It's incredibly powerful. Thank you for being here, for subscribing, and for coming along with me as I learn the world of podcasting and this community takes shape. I have so many incredible stories coming next that honestly, I'm having a hard time waiting each week to share the next one with you. If you found value in these conversations and you haven't already left a review, it would mean the world if you took a quick moment to write one or just share this with a friend who would appreciate it. And if you found this episode to be impactful, post about it on Instagram and tag me at space and purpose. I would love to hear from you. 